One more movement of prayer before the message this morning. The Psalms are in the Bible to teach us to pray. I'm really excited that our next sermon-based small group series from February to Easter 2016 is going to be on praying the Psalms. It's going to be a great season for our church, but I thought it'd be fitting this morning to pray a psalm. And uh, the Psalms teach us to pray globally for the kingdom of God to to come down and reach every nation on the planet. And so we're going to pray Psalm 67. And uh, your part in this is, uh, it's just a short psalm. And about halfway through, I'm actually going to pause and I'll say something like, go. And I'd like you to shout out at least three nations that uh, you would like to see God's hand reach this morning in this moment of prayer. So shout out at least three names of nations when I say go. Let's pray for the world. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. Go. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Amen. Well, speaking of nations, several years ago, Queen Elizabeth from the UK visited America and the reporters were amazed at her attention to detail. 4,000 pounds of luggage. It included two outfits for every occasion and mourning outfits for every conceivable way that someone could pass away. It included uh, two valets, one hairdresser, 40 pints of plasma, just in case, and a white kid leather toilet seat, just in case. Price tag for all of it, for the queen to visit any nation, $20 million. And we will never be royals. Thank you, Lord. Um, But we're driving Cadillacs in our dreams. Uh, (laughs) When God visited the planet, there was great attention to detail. And never has God's penchant for planning been more observed than in the birth of Jesus Christ. Consider, the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, decides to take a census of the known Roman world, and he requires every citizen to register in the town of their ancestors. So that dislodges a, uh, now understand this, a recently married couple but long expecting, there's a detail, and uh, a professing virgin who is expecting a child, there's a detail. But... um, It dislodges them from their residence in the north, and they come down to uh, register in a town where Joseph's ancestors lived. It was called Bethlehem. 
Why? Why was Jesus, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem? Because 700 years earlier, a prophet spoke, a reporter, and he said that the Christ child would be born of a virgin. And also around 700 years earlier, another prophet, Micah, said that he would be born in the town of David and sit on David's throne as David's son, and that's Bethlehem. Let's see it for yourselves. Do you want to see it? Look, Isaiah 7. Would you read it with me? And see God's penchant for planning out loud with me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Bethlehem in Micah 5 and verse 2. Would you read this with me? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And uh, you see this. It was prophesied that this uh, detail, that he'd be born in a cave. Uh, Look at Isaiah 53. He grew up with me. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And it was reported uh, over 500 years before the event happened that the first vocational group to visit this uh, child king would be shepherds because he would be like them, a shepherd ruler. Look at Ezekiel 34 with me. I'm sorry. I just want you to say these things with me. With me, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. And the plan called for this, that on the 40th day of life for this young baby, he would appear in the temple according to the law. He would be brought by his parents, Mary and Joseph, who in three times in four verses there in Luke 2 says that they wanted to fulfill the law and keep the law. And so they bring him 40 days and they have to offer the uh, offering of, of the poor, two pigeons to cleanse them because they had the blood of the womb on their hands. And then they had to pay the price that every family needed to pray pray for the firstborn son, five shekels. And that means that God would loan his son because the firstborn belonged to God, firstborn male child belonged to God. And to redeem them, you paid the five shekels and God would loan you his son. That's what they paid. It's uh, amazing. Again, three times it points, they kept the law. They kept the law in fulfillment of the law. What we see is the entire law pointing to this child. He will be the one who will perfectly live this law and live the righteous life that you and I are unable to live. Look at him. The ceremony, however, is interrupted by a dude we're going to learn a little bit about this morning named Simon. Simeon. If I say Simon, I mean Simeon. I don't know, I got Simon stuck in my head. Whenever I say Simon, it's Simeon. Simeon visits the child. He comes up, and well, this is weird. He comes up because according to the text, the God baby that Mary's holding, 
is speaking into the mind of this old man. That's wild. If you can see it, it's a prophet. Simeon is a prophet that's going to pray over the dedication of the Christ child, 40 days old, in the temple. What you see happening here is the law and the prophets pointing to this child and saying, he's the one that all of the law and all of the prophets point to here. When God visits, we've been saying these last few weeks during Advent, here's the big idea. When God visits, we have got to make up our mind about who this child is. We've got to make up our mind. Christmas is a shove. It forces us to decide who this child is. Simeon, here's the story. Let's look at it. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses uh, 25 to 35 in Luke chapter 2. And we're going to see that when God visits, we have to make up our mind about who this child is. And we're going to listen to Simeon say and see who this child is. Follow along with me, please, as I read this great story in the birth narratives in Luke 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Who is this Simeon? And why is he in the story? Why is he one of the details? God's plan. Simeon is a simple man. It seems that day and night he's at the temple. That's his life, being at the temple. A simple man with a singular focus, the consolation of his people Israel. His main concern is that his nation, his people, has lost their heart for God, their consolation, finding their treasure in everyone else and everything else except God. And so he's in the temple every day praying for his people. But one other detail, the spirit, it seems, has revealed to him that he would not die until he has seen the Messiah. 
Now, it says in the text that he's also righteous and devout. Interestingly, those two words are put together to describe only three other men. One was Job, the great hero of the First Testament. Uh, And then Zechariah, as Elsa read this morning, the father of John the Baptist. And the third was an Italian army officer named Cornelius, who shared a foodie dream with Peter in Acts chapter 10, which led to his conversion to Christianity. It's there. You should read it. Very interesting story. Now, This man, Simeon, was righteous and devout. His name comes from a a, a classic name in Israel of Leah's second son, Simeon. You might remember that Leah was married to Jacob in a very difficult marriage. And she was pouring her heart out to God, and God gave her this son. And God said to name him Simeon. And the name Simeon means God hears. Some of you this morning, are in the fight of your life for your marriage. And you need to hear Simeon. God hears. That's the surface. That's Simeon. Beneath the surface, there's a whole lot going on with this guy. It says three times in two verses that the Spirit is on him. The Spirit reveals to him that he won't die until he sees the Christ child and that the Spirit moves him to this couple carrying this child. If you can see it, Simeon is a prophet. There's wildness there. Talking all the time to the uh, this Holy Spirit in his head, wondering the temple. Is this the one? Is the, I mean, you have to ask what Luke's doing here and why Simeon is in the story. I think there's a, at least three reasons. The first is because though Luke is a medical doctor, a Gentile medical doctor, and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, who we don't know except that's a Greek name and probably one of the leading citizens, Luke is also aware that the Jews are reading this story as well and listening in. So what's interesting is one of the things Luke's doing in Luke chapter 2 is authenticating the birth of Christ. Because you remember that in the Old Testament law, for anything to be certified as historically accurate, it was established by three witnesses. And if you read Luke 2, it's exactly what Luke's doing. He's giving the witnesses to the birth of Jesus Christ, the shepherds, Simeon, and Anna. And so he is verifying events. He's also reaching a wider audience, secondly, by what he's doing, is is he wants us to understand that the entire ministry of Jesus, even from his birth, is outward-oriented to the extreme margins, to the poor, to the needy, to those who actually need to be saved. Jesus said it this way, I did not come to save those who are healthy. I came to save those who are sick, who need to be saved. And you see this in the birth of Christ with what? Poor peasant teenagers being the parents. Uh, shepherds being the first on scene, all of this happening probably in a cave or some room outside of the main guest house. Um, You see it in these feeble old prophets, Simeon and Anna, who by any measure were thought to be bizarre in the temple world. This is Luke saying, this is the character of Jesus' ministry. Thirdly, he's saying, Jesus just wanted a prophet to pray at his baby dedication. (laughs) Jesus loved the prophets. He says in Matthew chapter 5 that whenever you're treated 
like a prophet, that is, whenever you're persecuted on account of me, you are in good company. Jesus loved his prophets, and he wants a prophet to pray over him when he's dedicated to his father. And what a moment of beauty this is. Now, that means Simeon takes his place in the long line of women and men who looked into the future and watched it come into the present. Men like we've talked about in the past two weeks, like last week Moses, whose skin was glory burned because he talked with God face to face. And Simeon takes his place after Daniel, who we talked about two weeks ago, who uh, from his knees changed the power structure in the entire world, as Walter Wink says, because history belongs to the intercessors. And then Daniel was so committed to prayer, you'll remember, he walked into a den of lions, a den of death, in order to save his world. And Simeon takes his place after Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you remember, who God called at one particular moment in Israel's history to lie on his left side for 390 days and not get up. Think about that. 390 days lie on your left side for Israel, then flip over and lie for Judah on your right side for 40 days to symbolize the way that I'm bearing with your sins. Then get up when you're all done a year into this and cook your first meal over human dung to give a sense of how God looks at sin. And then there's Simeon. And then there's John the Baptist. John the Baptist who, you know, lived out in the desert preaching fire and and agitating an entire nation. And then when people would see him and question him, he'd say, it's not me, it's him. It's him, Jesus. It's why I'm here. His words will not only set your heart on fire, but he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's him. And there's Simeon. There's Simeon. Jesus wants a prophet to preach at his dedication. What was it like? What was it like for Simeon? Well, I think it was wild. I mean, can you imagine if you were a young mom carrying in your newborn baby to, uh, to church on that particular morning? And what you would actually be doing is looking around the corner to make sure Simeon is nowhere in sight. Because if Simeon came running to you, he might take your baby. Look at him. You know, he was pestering the young moms in the temple court of women. Is this the one? Is this the one? I know the priests had spoken to him. They had spoken, Simeon, you have to quit stalking the young moms and the parishioners. But Simeon would say to them, no, no, I can't because God told me I'm going to see the Messiah before I die. And I have words that I need to speak over his life. Would you believe him? Would you believe him? You see, uh, I think we're drawn to the wild man. I think we're drawn to this idea that when we sense someone has the Holy Spirit in her or in him and there's something like holy going on, something wild, we're drawn to that, but yet we keep our distance. Because when we brush up against the holy, we realize how small we are, how creaturely we are, how wild and pure and big God is. So we're drawn to the wild man, but we keep our distance. Like, for instance, when we go to the zoo and see the lion's den, and we love to look at the lions as long as there's a steel fence there. And we love to watch the movies of Jason Bourne and James Bond, but we'd never let them drive our car. 
And we love the wild blue brothers, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, but we would never introduce them to our parents. And we love John the Baptist and Daniel and Ezekiel, but not at family camp. Come on, Zeke, why can't you use charcoal like everyone else? You know, we're drawn to the wild man, but we keep our distance. And you know what's interesting is we're still drawn to that which is wild and holy and uncontainable. We're still drawn to that, even though we live in a culture that is flattening and getting flatter every day. We live in a culture where it's believed our theory of origins is something like this. At some point, we as a multi-celled organism, a complex of chemicals on our own, don't know how it happened, but on our own walked out of the amino acid sea. And then it's believed that these uh, ideas of love and even the experience of the holy are nothing more than complex chemical reactions in our brains. And then in our culture, it's believed that because of our origins, when someone dies, we will never, ever see them again in life. Never. And that any idea of morality and ethics comes from what the majority perceives feels to be right. And then any sense of this universe, it, and more than just a cold, complex mechanism, and all that science does is try to figure out how the giant clock works. You know, all that we, we've come from nowhere and we're going from nowhere. And the only sense of meaning that we have in this life is any kind of meaning we can cobble together, which makes sense and gives us some construct of meaning. But all of it, all of the origins being taught in our culture today, all of it, there's very little reason to say that we, our existence probably has never, ever mattered. Never. And yet, in this flat and flattening culture in which we live, there seems to be something in the human spirit, some thirst for beauty, some craving for meaning, some a connection to something bigger that's in everything we do. It's in every movie we watch. Something... Well, uh, we are drawn to the wild man because we think there's something there that our soul craves. I may get into trouble for this. Write me a letter, but here goes. I believe that in the soul of every man, he wants to be wild. I'm not talking about like howling at the moon and beating drums. I, 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 I'm talking about doing something uh, uh, under what we would call the kingdom of God, which moves in love and service towards another human being or towards the created planet with something wild and risky and dangerous and that costs something. There's something built into us that wants to be wild. I'm suggesting that for every man, there is out there an adventure to chase and a battle to fight, and a beauty to endure and rescue. And I'm saying that even though our culture tries to flatten it, it's still in every movie that you ever watch, there's some kind of line, like in one of my favorites, Braveheart, which says, every man will die, but not every man will really live. You know? Uh, <laughs> something driving that spirit. And I'm suggesting... I'm suggesting that women dig wild men. Now, I know that you moms are telling your daughters to grow up and marry Mr. Rogers and shoot for stability, but all the while you're pining for Russell Crowe on People Magazine as you walk through the checkout aisle at King Supers. We pine for something wild. 
We are drawn to leaders who see what's unseen, and that makes them dangerous. That makes them unscripted. That makes them not flattened by our culture. And I'm suggesting that Jesus wanted a man like that, a prophet, to pray at his dedication when he was 40 days old. So he's got our attention. What now does Simeon say? Let's look at it. Let's look at what he says over this child because we've got to make up our minds about who he is. Uh, Verses 29 and 32. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And Simeon says two things, very important things about this baby that he's holding. He says first that he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A Gentile is someone who has no history with God. They grew up in a different uh, uh, religious culture, a different uh, nation than where you would regularly hear Jesus being talked about or, or God being revealed. They, they have their own ways uh, and other religions. And what Simeon is prophesying over this baby is that he would be the one from all religions who you would look at and say, if you want to know who God is, look at this baby. Look at this person. Jesus is the one who puts God into words. John 1.18. In other words, let me say it this way. Christ explains God. So if you want to know who this God is, you have you always had this sense as a Gentile, you know, a, a pagan out there, that there's someone out there who's bigger and stronger than me. Do you want to know who that is? Look at Jesus. Jesus puts God into words. And if you want to know who God is and what he's like, look at this child. Look at Jesus. But it's more. It's not only it's light for revelation about who God is, but it's also light for revelation about what this world is. If you want to know what, why this world is the way it is, it's the Christian worldview that makes the most sense of what's going on around us. I quoted this two, two weeks ago when we preached the Daniel message, but it's, so, it's here too. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, S-U-N, because not only do I see its light, but by its light, I see everything else. Christ explains God Christianity explains the world. And this child, who is this? What child is this? This child is the one who puts God into words and explains our existence. Look at him. Look at him. So he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, the glory of his people, Israel. That idea is that God had revealed himself to Israel over two or 3,000 year period and given them the scriptures. They know God. What happened with Israel? They lost their heart. They were off mission. They no longer viewed God as their weight and their wildness, their guts or their glory. They had lost passion. And Jesus coming, this baby, who's Simeon holding? He's holding the passion of Israel, the one who can set your heart on fire. They are missing him. You know, if I could quote the boss, everybody's got a hungry heart. And the way that the world usually goes after that is like this. It's called outside in. They usually say, well, if I could just change the circumstances of my life, 
if I could just get what I really think is missing, like a great job or a great romance or enough money to have the lifestyle that I want. Or, you know, maybe it's sometimes even more, if I could just get an Audi, you know, whatever it is. We, in this world, in our culture flattening us, we operate outside in and we say, well, it's our external circumstances that make us happy. Christianity is the religion for the hungry heart because it operates just the opposite of that. Christianity says, no, once you have the relationship with this wild man that we're going to call Jesus, then everything in your life operates inside out so that no matter what your external circumstances are, because you have this fired relationship in your heart, this burning passion for Jesus, then no matter what your circumstances, you have a fierce, fierce joy. You say, wait a minute, you're you're saying Jesus is a wild man? You're saying Jesus is the one who, you know, once your heart gets that no matter what your circumstances, uh, that's exactly what I'm saying for two reasons. First, because I'm convinced that outside in doesn't work. Tried it. Watched others try it. If you are sitting here waiting for something from outside to make you happy, you're going to crush whatever that is and be perpetually hungry. I love this uh, little piece from Cynthia Hyman, who, uh, Heimel, she uh, writes for the Village Voice in New York City, and she knows a lot of movie stars, and she knows many of them before they became famous when they were uh, waiters in restaurants. She says, "I, I pity celebrities. No, I do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think... When God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. Outside in, it does not work. Inside out is the worldview of Christianity because it's not about a religion. It's about a relationship that sets hearts on fire. If you get Jesus in you, then you've got wild in you. You're saying, wait, you're saying Jesus is wild? What are you saying? I thought he was Gandhi with hair. I thought he was Richard Chamberlain with a beard. Well, Jesus wild, explain that. Let me explain it. I think once you get Jesus and that relationship, he gets inside you, and then you've got something like John the Baptist inside of you. John the Baptist, whose words agitated an entire nation. John the Baptist, who uh, set... uh, hearts on on fire, but every time people would ask him about it, he'd say, look, it's not me. It's this one who baptizes in the spirit. If you get him, you get the spirit in your heart and the spirit connects you to the relationship you've always been looking for, the relationship with your maker, your father, God. Once you get those words of Jesus, he connects you to God. And so what you have is a changed heart. Jesus is wild because he gets inside of you and changes your heart. And I think you get someone like 
uh, Daniel inside of you because Jesus is the wild man like Daniel. What happens is you, you get committed to this thing like prayer and you are willing with great, with immense courage to walk into situations and be the presence of Jesus, even a den of lions. Why? Because you know that even if the worst happens to you, what's the worst? Even though you die, it's an upgrade. Why? Because the one inside you is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. And the one who believes in me will never die. You see, the moment that Jesus died, scores of people all over the city of David and Jerusalem jumped out of their graves. And then three days later, Jesus punched a hole in the pitiless walls of death, crawled through out of his own grave by his own power and says to you and I, when we're facing our worst, follow me. You see, once this Jesus gets inside, it's inside out because he changes your heart and connects you to the Father and because he conquers death. And there's one more thing. You also get not only John the Baptist's wildness, you, and you not only get uh, uh, Daniel wildness, you get Ezekiel wildness. Lying on your side for 390 days. When Jesus, Jesus lied down for you and he took on every sin you've ever committed and especially those ones that still today haunt you. And for whatever reason you can't let go of, I'm telling you that Jesus lied down for you and he took that sin for you and he took the stain and the stench of that sin for you and you are free. Can I boldly say it? If you're still holding on to some regret, some sin from the past, you are the only one still holding on to it. Let it go. Jesus lied down for you. He's Ezekiel for you. And you have that wildness in you. And that's why we operate inside out and it makes us wild because we know we're connected to God. We know that we have resurrection in us and we know that we are cleansed of every sin and sinful habit and whatever it is we're wrestling with. Jesus lied down and took that for us. That gets inside of us and makes us wild. Now, that's what Simeon says. Now look at what Simeon sees, how this works out. Look at the last verses in the story. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. What kind of a thing is that to say to a young mother? Prophets say what they see. And what Simeon saw as he blessed this baby, 40 days old, being offered to God, he saw Mary the mom standing at the foot of the cross watching in 30-some years her own son be murdered and carry the sins of the world. He sees Mary standing at the cross. It tells us two things in that. First, it tells us that you and I, many hearts will be revealed. You and I, 
have to make our choice about who this child is and what he's asking us to do. Following Christ, you will never hear anyone at Waterstone stand up here and say something like this. Never. You will never hear us say, if you follow Jesus, he will take away all your problems. Your life will be comfortable and easy and you will have everything you want. Mm -mm. I, I, be nice to say that. It could sell a lot of books. The call to follow this baby as you decide who he is when he's visited us. The call is this. Pick up your cross and follow me. Our existence is always cruciform. What that means is when you see who this child is and you fall down before him, you come and worship him, that means that you say to him, command me. And that means every part of your life now falls into orbit around him. And here's where the cross comes in. That means that Jesus is going to get into your wallet and start taking money and put it where it really needs to go. That means that Jesus is going to get into your time. We're all busy, but you always have time for what you really want to do. You do. And Jesus is going to get into your calendar and start messing around with how he wants to restore the world and you be a big part of it. And then Jesus is going to get into your relationships and he's going to have you model things like forgiveness and humility and forgiveness and joy. And, and did I say forgiveness? And he's going to mess with your relationship. You see, everything in your life is going to now fall into this shape of a cross. And that's pain. And it hurts and it costs something. But Simeon also sees that it's not just pain, but it's also gain. It's gain in the future, and we've talked about that. It's inside out. Once you follow Jesus, you have forgiveness of sins, you have resurrection in you already, and you have a connection to the Father, the Spirit, pouring his love into you every day. You have those future things now, but you even get a sense of adventure now. This is where it gets cool. You have adventure now, kingdom adventure. You have gain. You know, when uh, Jesus was baptized, the dove flew over and that was the Holy Spirit. That's a great symbol, peace. And I've always been a little drawn to, to the Celtic symbol for the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Celtic symbol for the Holy Spirit is? A goose. A wild goose. A raucous, unpredictable, dangerous, if you've ever walked into a flock of one, Goose. Do you know how the uh, Celtics in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries used to send out their missionaries? They used to put them in boats, push them out into the sea. Oh, yeah, and the boats didn't have oars. And they would say, wherever the wind, uh, spirit, wherever the wind blows and the currents take you, there is your calling. Wild goose. Do you know what that means for us? We are in the adventures, uh, adventure of our life, and it's called the kingdom of God. And he wants us going out on boats without oars and doing some wild things. So let me give you one. Just some suggestions. Make it practical. What if you walked into the new Southwest Plaza with five invitations to our Christmas Eve services and said, Goose, where do you want me to go? Who needs these? What if you were that wild. 
Or, better yet, what if you actually went to your neighbors and did it? Goose, here we go. I'm going to invite them to Christmas Eve. Here, I, I tell you what, if you come to Christmas Eve, you will get the gospel. It's why we do the freaking service. It's not for you and your worship. It's for your neighbors. So get goosed, will you? I mean, come on. What if you became a little wild with your words this Advent season? What if you got goosed there? Okay? Some of you parents have adult kids, and there's just been distance that's creeped in over the years. And some of it you know, if you're honest, is because you've neglected to say some things you should have said. Often things where you've, you need to own some of the things you've done and regret as a parent. What if you got wild this Christmas and actually said words of reconciliation and forgiveness and just told your kid that you love them and you want them more than anything? I make no promises about how it will be received, but give the goose a chance. And what if some of you whose marriage is really hard What if some of you actually took the initiative and said to your spouse, I know things are hard right now. And maybe all you need to say to get something started is, I'm sorry. And I still want to commit to my marriage vows. And I want this to work. What if you started there and give the goose a chance? Some of you, as we close, are out there and you're thinking, Larry, an adventure Like, have you seen my life lately? Really? Here's what I want to say to you. When Jesus was on the cross, as Simeon prophesied, and he's looking at his mother, do you know what he said to his mom? He's in agony. He's being separated from his own father. And yet he looks into this crowd and he sees his mother. And he says to his mom with his eyes, there's your son. And he looks at John. And then he looks at John and says, there's your mother. What's he doing? He is taking care of his family from the cross. One time, Jesus' family actually came to him and they wanted to visit with him because they thought he was out of his mind too. (laughs) And Jesus says, later, I'll talk to my family, but I want you to hear this crowd. Anyone who does the will of my father is my mother and my brother and my sister. So Jesus from the cross is taking care of all the pain of his family. I know that for some of you, Christmas is the hardest time of year because you have lost things that hurt and you miss them deeply. And I want you to know that from the cross, Jesus sees you. And you've never been alone. And we will always be royals. So would you come and worship? If everything in your heart now is drawn to this baby that Simeon's holding, I want you to stand and sing. I want you to come and worship him now. Let's stand and sing.